Good. How are you, David? I'm fine, thanks. You're looking good. Looking you know, I, I, well, I get out quite often. The golf courses have started again, so mm. I've been mm. playing a few rounds of golf. And otherwise, if I, I, I like to go for a walk and listen to a book. Where, where are you based these days, David? Surbiton, southwest London. Oh, quite near me. Yes, we're in Mortlake, so um, not, not too far away. Um, very good. And Anthony's in uh, right in the centre of town, aren't you? Mm. I have been to uh, Surbiton. Um, my wife's gluten-free, and uh, there's a gluten-free Asian restaurant in Surbiton, or there was at the time. And they just, I don't know how they do it, but they just have the most extensive gluten-free, like dim sum menu I've ever seen. Simply Chinese or something like that? or I think it's something like that, yeah. That's, uh, yes, we go there occasionally. Oh, yeah. right. Are you gluten-free then, David? No, it's just the nearest Chinese restaurant. And, uh... <laughs> there you go. And they're, quite, they're, quite, they're quite nice. Yeah. Yes, all right. There's no taste differential that is noticeable. No, no. I think I think you have an option. You don't have to have gluten free if you don't want it. Okay. Well, we're in. There you go. And um, so, look, David, we we kind of um, first of all want to thank you for doing today. Uh, apologies for me being late again. You can thank Liberty Low Football, budding football superstarlet uh, for that. Um, bit of background on on you know, I suppose what we're doing here. Uh, you may or may not have seen some of the season one that we published of, of fun stars and found stars because I, I know you're really quite a busy person with all the the futurist work and you tend to focus more on the future um I would add and I suppose in, in essence what we what we're doing with fun stars and found stars is you know it's focusing I suppose a bit more on the here here and now um but you know VCs that we think are successful VCs and then founders that we've worked with or I've worked with over the course of Bloomberg days and and then subsequently in the consultancy which not Wix has become um after after life at Bloomberg um but uh, you know I, I thought it's a perfect forum and we do we've had a number of people who we or I and, and, and Anthony view as being real leaders in the ecosystem come on and talk we recently in season one we had um, which as I said has just been published we had Stephen Kelly from Tech, Tech Nation we, we've got a number of other people that are lined up over the course of the next few months who you know are I'd say our founders in their own right, um, albeit it's not a tech startup, but the, um, I suppose the nature of the business that they've created is a massive interest to the community that we're, um, we're I suppose, servicing with the, with the podcast and the podcast. And the stats and Anthony is is the digital guru here um, the stats are growing and and you know therefore we like to lend our platform to um, people who I think would benefit from that and also we would have interest from our community and I think you know going back to our days when we first met David at Bloomberg um, you know I think you've always known that you know I've, I've kind of I suppose had a bit of a Pied Piper sort of approach to this and had a, a group of people that have always really followed the what, what we we sort of we I curated or, or focused on in the private tech space. And you know, I always loved everything you did um or do. Um I obviously we 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 kind of interacted more so in the Bloomberg days, but I, I thought it would be a great opportunity to catch up and 40, 45 minutes. Um you know talking about certain areas of the future hearing your perspectives how they've changed if they have changed over covid so um and then before we do, do go 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 on um I, i'll just give anthony i don't know if anthony's had a chance to introduce himself to you in the period that... we, we had a chat yes okay so good so we, we're a double act think of morecambe and wise um all right or... oh, that's a new one <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's more my era than your era, Anthony. I, I think we, we we usually go for Anton, Chris. Who's who's got the hairpiece then? <laughs> Clearly, Anthony. Chris has <laughs> left it off screen for the time being. <laughs> so um, yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, I suppose more common wise is David and, and my era somewhat more. Um, but look, you know, David. First of all, um, a few, you know, obviously we want to promote what you do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we will distribute on when we we put the um, the pod, 
pod on um, Spotify, Anchor, Google, Apple, everywhere that it's it's distributed. We'll, we'll obviously naturally put a link to the London Futurists um, and, and naturally Great. Um, push the, the, the VOD and the pod through our community in, in the social media as well. So I think with that in mind and kicking off... Um, uh, you know, I, I know I know you from London Futurists, but your interest in futurism, I think, is is probably pretty long-standing. And I, I just wondered for the for the audience if you could perhaps just give a, a, an introduction, just how the Futurist was created, your interest in futurism, perhaps what you may have done before that sparked that interest i mean that would be a really good starting point for today's conversation so one of the starting points is my time in the mobile computing industry which then morphed into the smartphone industry so in the late 1980s i got a job in the software engineering team at cyan the manufacturers of the Organizer 2 and then the Series 3 and then the Series 5 and naturally as part of that team we would often talk well what's coming next how will computing technology become more widely used what are the new possibilities in education healthcare and so forth and I eventually took the role as a executive vice president for research which is a sort of futurist I had to anticipate possible disruptions coming along, some of which we did anticipate and handle, and some of which we anticipated and we couldn't handle. And the rest is history, as the company I was in, Symbian, got overtaken by faster, more powerful, more nimble companies from Silicon Valley, namely Apple with its iPhone and Google with its Android. That interested me in what was happening in the future. London Futurist itself dates back to a group of people meeting nearly 20 years ago. They met online and they wanted to meet in the physical world too, first in the downstairs cafe of Waterstones in Piccadilly, then in the famous Penderell's Oak Pub in Holborn, where they would gather to discuss radical ideas from people like Eric Drexler, the father of nanotechnology, or Ray Kurzweil, who was already quite famous by then. He had written a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, in which he argued that AI in the future wouldn't just be logical, it would be creative, and compassionate and even spiritual. And there was discussion of people like Aubrey de Grey, who then was much less famous. He is now well known as a biogerontologist who thinks that ending aging is a feasible proposition. We discussed his ideas along with Natasha Vitamore, who is the advocate of redesigning the human body, morphological freedom, transhumanism, and so on. I got involved shortly afterwards, and over time, I brought some of my business skills to the group, trying to structure it a bit more so we were more rigorous in our discussions, not just, hey, this would be nice, this might happen sometime, but, well, what time skills are such things credibly possible? And what are the evaluation of these things, not just credibility, but desirability? What are the downsides? What are the upsides? How do we go about deciding what's desirable or undesirable about these radical changes? And then also, very practically, what can we do about it? Not just cheer from the sidelines, but how do we get involved and change the future? And over the time, London Futurist has grown. The community online is about 8,500 people now, and I've organized nearly 300 public events where I've had the benefit of listening to all sorts of people with their ideas on the future. And I think futurism is growing. It used to be a kind of a often laughed at. People would say, oh, do you have a crystal ball? Where's my flying cars? But people are realizing that the future is arriving more quickly and uh, more disruptively than previously expected. And people are realizing that most of these new trends go through a long period of slow disappointment before there's a, a rapid breakthrough and suddenly everybody says, why did nobody tell us about this in advance? Whereas in fact, of course, we were speaking about it before. So more people are alert now to futurism. More people call themselves futurists on their business card than ever before. And that's a good thing. And I hope to accelerate that trend further with my forthcoming new book, which I'll just briefly mention. It's trying to highlight how we can be more confident in our predictions about the future. So it's called Predictions and Foresight, Good, Bad, and Vital. Mm. 
Interesting. Good. All right. Well, look, it's great, great, great kickoff there, uh, David. Um, I suppose, you know, I'm keen in the, I suppose, in consideration of the recent news flow from Apple, which um, came through, I think, this week about Apple Glass or, or their VR, AR offering. Um, now, I know we talked probably at length about VR and AR way back in 14 or 15 when, when you used to come in, come into Bloomberg quite regularly. And it was always thought, oh, you know, it is, you know, by 2020, we'll all be walking around with big goggles on and, and or, or streamlined glasses that we could read people's minds as we were talking to them. It's been slow. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your view on, on that space, especially in the light of, you know, you just mentioned about, you know, Apple and, and uh, iOS came along and, and disrupted somewhat Symbian. You know, are we at a point now with Apple Glass or, or Apple VR, AR, that, you know, people have been tinkering, trying it, HoloLens, it's good, it's had its first generation, maybe its second generation, and now, like the mobile phone and like the smartphone, we're now possibly at that point where we could, you know, we're obviously Apple are very good at their timing, let's give them credit for that, that we are now at a point where in the next 12 to 18 months we could really see mass commercial adoption of this form factor more widely. I'm just curious what, what and also whether Apple could drive that adoption effectively. Well, you're right. This is something that hasn't yet lived up to the expectations that many of us did have going back to 2014. In fact, if I look at slides I had done in 2008, 2009, I was predicting that Google Glass would be quite common within three or four years' time. And it turned out that the product was much harder than not as, been expected. Uh, not as stylish as Apple probably is going to make it as well. <laughs> well, that was one problem, that uh, people looked uh, strange, uh, it was uncomfortable to use, the battery life wasn't very good, and the field of view, which is how much do you actually able to see, it wasn't as wide as people had expected. So there are all kinds of practical uh, issues and delays. But I think it will come in due course. Some of the smart headset stuff may have migrated in the meantime to the ears, and I'm, I'm not wearing any smart headset just now, but many people do have increasingly smart earbuds in voice of God in their heads, that may come in due course, but there has been uh, some steady progress. HoloLens, I think, is very uh, respectable. Mm -hmm. Google, uh, sorry, Microsoft's HoloLens has uh, received continual funding. They wisely focused on a particular set of markets, more industrial markets yep. to start off with, where people didn't mind wearing heavy headsets. You don't need to look particularly stylish when you're doing some of these professional tasks. And the later HoloLens has got lighter, it has improved in its field of view, its battery, lifetime, and so on. So I think it just takes a while, and it's hard to know how long it takes. After all, if we go back to the first mobile phones, there are famous pictures of Motorola's engineer Marty Cooper using a mobile phone in the street in New York in, I think it's about 1974 shocking people. People were brought in and they spoke on this device to relatives on the other side of the world. And it was uh, wonderful. But it took another 10 years before that product was actually commercially available. And it took Motorola another 10 years after that. So sometime in the 90s before they had paid back all the very considerable money they had put into developing that market. So that took longer than might have expected because guess what? Lots of little problems. But Apple have the advantage of a long-term vision, uh, a long-term uh, commitment. And whether they are successful in this or whether it is something that comes out of other companies, I wouldn't write off Facebook altogether in this. Facebook's progress with the Oculus has again been disappointing. They bought Oculus with a whole fanfare and then almost slowed it down, uh, arguably, in terms of what it could have done. But in due course, something like that will come. And of course, it may not be the Silicon Valley companies that finally produce successful smart glasses. It could also be companies from elsewhere in the world, such as China or India, mm -hmm. that will do this. 
You mentioned the uh, the voice of God in your head. Is that Elon Musk with his Cyberlink, or is that perhaps coming from a different source? So the Neuralink uh, technology that Elon Musk is developing, which yeah. uh, involves embedding chips right into the brain with a wireless connection to outside, that's a little bit further down the line. It is remarkable what they have managed to do. Previous people had also had animals controlling things with their minds, but what Neuralink have done is make that connection wireless. And the battery is also charged wirelessly as well. So in principle, that device could stay in that monkey's brain or that pig's brain indefinitely. And there are, of course, short-term implications for people who are paralyzed. Uh, uh, very real use cases there. But what I'm thinking about more is a headset that will be speaking in our ears, a little bit like a friend might do. Occasionally, a friend might tap you on the shoulder and say, Give, leave this one, you know, or calm down. Or it might whisper in your ears the word that's on the tip of your tongue, but you can't quite remember it. Hmm. So it might come up with the name of a company that I should inject into this conversation, for example. And today I'm not wearing any such headsets, but I think these things will come and we'll consider them like guardian angels. So they don't need to be embedded in the brain yet. And whether or not that's a good idea remains to be seen. But I wouldn't bet against Elon Musk and what he will accomplish with that uh, product line. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. The the, the Neuralink argument, it, is that a, a here and now or is that a real kind of, is this a 20-year game that is going to play out? I mean, I'm curious to sort of understand you know, are there any humans that are agreeing to have chips in injected into their brain yet? There are many who are desperate to get the chips injected in their brain because they are currently paralyzed in various ways. And it's an incredibly frustrating experience for them. So they are very keen to volunteer to be as the first uh, trials. Now, hmm. there is no approval yet. There needs to be other uh, checks uh, and trials done. But I think there may be some people who have some systems inside them within a, a couple of years. And then we'll have to wait and see. This is enabling people who are what, blind or um, physically immobile or what, what, what type of disabilities is, is the, the sort of chipset going to help? Well, the idea is it could enhance any aspect of the brain and sensory functioning okay. as we understand the how these mechanisms are meant to operate. So the first thing is going to be people with various locked-in syndromes, people with motor neuron disease, for example. Uh, there are people who are trying to fight against the ravages of motor neuron disease by a bit like what happened to Stephen Hawking. He didn't have motor neuron disease, it was a related disease, but he could still speak by moving his eyes or I think it was a little bit of his mouth he could move or uh, he, he could still operate yeah. combination. So if you could do it just by thinking as this monkey can maneuver a uh, cursor on the screen, it can play Pong uh, impressively well. Uh, if you could have that, then you could have somebody maneuvering uh, words in a screen and then speaking them on your behalf. So there are people who want that. In terms of uh, overcoming blindness, there are systems already that have been developed, not involving Neuralink, but other approaches. Let me mention here possibly a book that may interest some of the viewers. It is called The Neural Generation. It's written by a Vietnamese Australian entrepreneur called Tan Li, who is one of the founders of a company called Emotive. She now lives and works in San Francisco, and it is a headset that can uh, monitor what's happening in the brain and uh, provide uh, information as to what's going on. And a system like this was used by a paraplegic person to drive a racing car around a racetrack a while ago, and he did it by thinking. So that's there, and there are plenty of other examples in that book, The Neurogeneration. Uh, I think it's got a good balance of optimism and uh, skepticism. One of the uh, one of the interesting ideas that I came across was the importance of convergence when looking towards the future. For instance, with having Neuralink or self-driving cars, the convergence with 5G. What are some of those important combinations that people should be keeping an eye on? 
I mean, you're quite right. If we talk about what made the iPhone successful, it was multiple technologies. It was a mobile web browser. It was the capacitive touch. It was ubiquitous Wi-Fi. It was uh, chips that were more powerful than before, which could be combined. Uh, it was also the application store. So to be successful, you often need to bring together numerous different technological innovations. So in terms of what's possible, uh, the trends that people should keep an eye on, I'm very bullish about AI. Um, some people are predicting an AI winter. I don't think so at all. I think there are numerous different strands inside AI. It's not just one thing. It's probably about at least 10 different technological areas inside AI, including improvements in the UI enabled by AI. This is the field of affective computing in which the computer is aware in various ways of our emotional state and can adjust its interactions based on what it picks up about our emotions. There are other trends in AI as well, such as the text generative models, the GPT-3 famously from OpenAI, and there are many other methods. Uh, systems by other companies doing similar things. So AI is uh, moving ahead in multiple ways and like the other things we previously discussed, it goes through a disappointing phase often before it comes through a faster, a more furious phase. But at the same time, we should talk about improvements in chipsets. And there are new chipsets which will enable better efficiency. They are more targeted to various uses. Indeed, the breakthroughs in 2012 or so on about deep learning, they were made possible by adoption of a different kind of chipset, the GPU, which is the graphics processing unit, which was initially developed for teenagers of all ages to enjoy graphically rich games. It involves lots of parallel processing. Well, a team at the Canadian University in uh, Toronto, headed by Jeff Hinton, uh, had the bright idea of using the GPU not to do uh, graphics parallel processing, but to do parallel training of a deep learning network. And that was the thing that made the breakthrough that these deep learning ideas, which had been around for many decades, suddenly became viable as a combination there. So, and there are many other people developing new chipsets. Google have developed various TPUs, tensor processing units. There are startups, quite large companies now, doing their own uh, kinds of chips. So that's a second uh, line of uh, progress too, which is part. And then there's changes in users' attitudes. What can often cause tipping points is when users move from skepticism saying, no, I'm not interested in that, to suddenly seeing many of their peers doing something and then adopting it. And we've seen this, of course, recently with uh, changes in work habits because of the COVID lockdown. Many people were saying they hated using remote working and they would never get used to it. And they've been forced to find out ways to make it work. And having figure out how to make it work, more and more people are adopting it. So there is a change in attitude there, which has then accelerated latent trends, which were moving fairly slowly, such as the adoption of remote working. That's never going back to how it was before. Mm. I think uh, one other area that people would be quite disappointed if we didn't talk about um, was quantum computing. And one aspect of that, which I find fascinating is quantum cloud computing as well, where it's AWS, but for quantum computing and, you know, people can have access to it that way. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and insights as well. Well, you can already do this with a number of companies who make their quantum uh, computing capabilities available remotely. And you're right, this is potentially tremendously disruptive. Nobody's quite sure how quickly we're going to get systems that have enough error correction, enough long-term stability that we'll be able to do new uh, types of calculations. People were predicting that we should have quantum supremacy sometime this year. Actually, they predicted it last year as well. It's arguable whether it's happened. There are one or two types of calculations quite unusual idiosyncratic calculations, which quantum computers can do faster than any classical computer could do. 
but it isn't available more generally yet. It's only a limited number of uh, fields of algorithms. But in due course, I think quantum computing is going to revolutionize drug discovery because it's able to simulate the chemistry ahead of doing the real chemistry. AI is already uh, having a significant Im impact on drug discovery because it's able to calculate in advance the likely behavior, the likely properties of uh, materials or uh, compounds in different situations. And so there is progress there. Famously, the DeepMind group in Google uh, made great progress with solving a, 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 a chemical problem called how do proteins fold? What shape do they take? Uh, so there is progress with AI, but as Richard Feynman said long ago, the best way to calculate what chemistry is going to do is to use, he didn't call it a quantum computer, but effectively that's what, what it was about. So once quantum algorithms are larger and more stable, we could see lots of breakthroughs in the discovery of new drugs, the discoveries of new materials and other interactions, and critically, the design of something which I mentioned at the very beginning, nanotechnology, which was Eric Drexler's vision that we could have nano-sized computers or even uh, manufacturing at that uh, nanoscale. And it's possible that quantum computing is going to make that happen. In terms of the timescales, it's still hard to say because there are just many unknowns involved. But I wouldn't write it off. And there's a, at least a 50% chance that within five years, we will have a totally different understanding of the power of quantum computing and it will be used uh, significantly. On the other hand, it could take 15 years as well. It may just be too difficult to make that stuff work. Yeah, it's the significance of unknowns, right? There's the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. <laughs> and it's the latter that usually causes you a big problem. So with, with the quantum computing hat on, David, um, the, we, we do have mem you know, people in the audience who are more of an, an investment focus. Would, would you kind of be pinpointing any particular companies, startups, scale-ups, even the bigger companies and what, what they're doing that people should watch? And, um, you know, would, would you have any kind of names that people should look at here? Well, you're right that some of the large companies are making multiple bets on quantum computing. So Google have got at least two and maybe three different uh, teams working in different approaches to quantum computing. IBM have got multiple approaches too, as I remember it. I know there's lots of fascinating stuff happening in the United Kingdom, around Cambridge and around London. There is a very vibrant quantum computing meetup. So it's not London Futurist, but there's quantum computing who have gone from strength to strength, I have to say. So probably people who are interested in this field are already tracking that meetup, where they bring in technologists, they bring in uh, investors, and they bring in uh, sometimes mathematicians as well. But if you haven't seen that already, you can find them easily online. And they will give, I think, a more reliable guide than I can pull off the top of my head just now. Okay, that's great. No, that, thank you for that. Um, fascinating stuff. Um, so I also remember two, two of the topics we used to discuss at LEMP um, back in Bloomberg days. Um, were what one was around the connected home the connected life obviously we were then talking about this will become apparent when 5g happens i'd love to hear more of your perspectives on that and then the other kind of radical thing that i was you know there would always be some sharp-witted individual in the audience that would kind of ask you or the panel that you were hosting so you know when we reach the point of singularity will we will it be like terminator and we're going to have loads of robots killing the human race and you know there's going to be a rogue state that kind of impact you know ha has that capacity and unleashes this army of robots that goes goes out and creates global dominance for whichever nation uh, and we all I, I think you used to very politely look at 
that, that those people and kind of, you know obviously entertain an answer but kind of think mm, <laughs> you know i think don't go too much by what you see in total recall and all those other kind of uh hollywood terminator, <laughs> terminator. sorry that's it um so yeah it's like, I, i'm kind of interested to hear what your your update would be on the sort of connected piece because obviously the homes have become more connected but i don't think quite to, to the same <laughs> level that we were predicting back then um and then obviously the uh, um you know the terminator piece well let's start with the two things that are wrong with the terminator analysis one is that in the terminator humans are able to make a superhuman effort and defeat the terminator whereas if it really was a super intelligence versus humans the super intelligence would wipe the floor with us it would be like a, a group of gorillas trying to overthrow the NATO alliance, you know, it's not going to happen. There is just a huge gulf. So that's the one drawback. The second uh, mistake in the film, and it's there, of course, for entertainment purposes, is the idea that the problem arises from a software with a, male a malevolence built into it or with uh, becoming awake, becoming conscious. And when it becomes conscious, that's when the problems arise. I would say that we already do have risks of armies of robots rampaging and doing damage. But they are not uh, super intelligent robots yet. They are fairly mindless bots, but they are bots running on uh, networks of uh, compromised devices. And so there have been lots of connected devices, including fridges, including printers, including baby monitors, including smart TVs. And many of them have had poor security and many of them have been hacked and many of them have been used to power denial of service attacks against a uh, large corporations. So there is use there of connected intelligence to do bad things. Now, the bad things are driven in this case by humans misusing the technology. Have we got the connectivity that was foreseen maybe 10 years ago? I think a lot of it has happened. We have a very good smart TVs now. And the first smart TV I bought was a bit of a disaster. I never used it. The software was awful. But my most recent one, uh, by LG, as it happens, is a wonderful uh, smart TV. And it's uh, great to have all these things uh, just appearing via Wi-Fi on that single screen. So that's there. My smart fridges, my, my most recent fridge does have Wi-Fi built in. I haven't had the need to connect it. I did try and connect it, and it gave some error messages. And I said, what? I'm not going to bother with that. So that hasn't happened yet for me. But people have got watches. If I look at uh, people of all ages on the golf course when I pass, many of them have got smart watches which are connected and tells them how far it is to the hole or how far it is to a group of bunkers they're trying to hit the ball over. So there is that smart intelligence there. What's going to make this take off more is when the health sensors that are built into these devices are even more reliable and even more uh, useful than at present. But I, I think there is a lot of connectivity already. And the dangers are that as we have even more connectivity, we will have even more vulnerabilities unless people take the security more seriously. One thing I think could go badly wrong with the world in the next few years, just as we've had a terrible biological infection taking advantage of our biological closeness, the COVID infection, we are probably going to have a cyber infections even worse than the ones I have talked about already. Mm. There is a fascinating and scary book by a New York Times journalist, Nicole Perlroth, called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. And she has examples from many years of journalism as to how there are vulnerabilities in large parts of the software that we are all using and they can be used to shut down heating, shut down electrical generation, they could be used to break the dams so that lots of water that is stored in dams could be flooded. This has happened to an extent in the Ukraine as a result of interference by Russia. This has happened famously in the last few days in Iran with probably interference uh, from Israel. And there will be more of this. 
almost certainly. What happened there, David, in, in Iran? Was it a dam or what? No, it was the nuclear, nuclear program. Yeah. They are refining uranium for mm. use, they say, in their nuclear power uh, generating facilities, possibly also for use in weapons. And understandably, uh, Israel uh, does not want to see a nuclear-powered Iran. And uh, they were behind the previous famous incident, Stuxnet. Uh, Allegedly. Was, <laughs> no, no, it's quite clear. It was, it's been uh, declassified now. Uh, a lot of the cooperation between... It was a program started under George W. Bush and uh, Obama agreed to continue it. One reason they got involved is they were afraid that if they didn't do something, Israel would actually drop a nuclear bomb possibly on that site. And yeah. so they thought, well, far better to have cyber. Now, this is serious stuff. You know, this is almost in the territory of Terminator with bombs going off. But why are bombs going off? Uh, they are because of uh, fear as to what weapons could be developed. Now, the Stuxnet thing uh, had a boomerang effect because once Iran figured out what had happened to them, uh, actually, it wasn't completely well controlled. Some of the malware leaked out and was understood and examined, and Iranian hackers deployed it against Saudi Arabia next and shut down for quite a long time the processing of Saudi Arabia's uh, largest uh, oil company and they were uh, reduced to running the company on paper and pencil for a while until uh, and huge numbers of computers were ruined by Iranian by Iranian hackers taking advantage of vulnerabilities so the vulnerabilities are everywhere just as we are biologically vulnerable to viruses biological viruses we are vulnerable there too so there are already problems and we haven't even talked about fake news yet which is a slightly more sophisticated way of using botnets to distort the political processes so i think there's going to be more of this and as we have smarter ai the risk is that we're going to have a ai that knows how to press each in each of our individual hot buttons so what will make me angry and uh, slamming the keyboard in despair will be something different for you than we'll do the same thing for you. Uh, but the AI will know as well enough and will know the right time to get us to unleash something that actually in our calmer moments we wouldn't have done. I'm, I, I know we've, we've looked or talked around this a bit um, already on, on the uh, episode, but point of singularity. Um, I hear varying reports when this is going to happen. Um, what's the latest in, in your perspective, David? So we can't give uh, any exact date for when the singularity will appear, which means that AI is smarter than humans in all our thinking capacity. So it has more general uh, reasoning capability, more general common sense, rather than just outperforming us in individual tasks. So I gave a range. I think it's 50% likely we will have such a technology available by 2045. I think it's 10% likely we'll have it as early as 2030. And the reason we can't predict it more precisely is because we don't yet know which breakthroughs are going to have the biggest effects. We know that we are missing some insights. There are lots of different people trying to improve the software systems, coming up with new architectures. They're all taking longer than was expected. But once the, we do have them, we don't know how many problems are going to be solved. And there have been examples in the past when after a breakthrough, many more things were possible than had been expected. You can go all the way back to Isaac Newton inventing calculus to solve the motion of the planets. And guess what? Calculus could revolutionize very many branches of physics as a result. Then in the 1920s, Schrodinger and Heisenberg and Paul Dirac here in the UK made a number of breakthroughs with quantum mechanics. And then suddenly for the next five years, as Paul Dirac said, even a second rate physicist could do first rate work. Even in deep learning, there were long delays, as I mentioned, until 2012, when uh, teams uh, showed they could do better image recognition with deep learning than had been previously expected. 
And in the next few years, there were breakthroughs in uh, translating from one language to another. There were breakthroughs in speech recognition in which uh, more progress had taken uh, more quickly than had happened in many decades earlier. And one more example of one breakthrough having more results than expected was when Google's DeepMind team developed software that beat the world's best Go player, AlphaGo, mm. in 2016. That was shocking. Mm. But what was even more shocking is small tweaks to that software suddenly produced software that was far better than the best chess player, the best software chess player ever as well. So it wasn't just that they came up with software that could do one program. It was actually more widely applicable. Now, it's not general AI yet because it can only work on a number of areas. But the possibility is that one breakthrough somewhere, once it happens, people are going to realize, aha, this is what's happening. And I'll refer to, at this stage, Jeff Hawkins, who is quite famous from the mobile computing world. When I was in Cyan in the early 1990s, helping to create the Science Series 3 and so on. Jeff Hawkins was building Palm Pilots. He has been working on his own theory of intelligence with his company Numenta for many decades. His view is that what's going on in the brain isn't anything like as complicated as most people say. His view is that the brain is broadly the same all the way over the neocortex and if we just understand what's happening in what he calls individual cortical columns, and he believes he has a good insight into that, once we can duplicate that, suddenly we will have uh, multiple kinds of uh, general intelligence there. And he may be right. And I do recommend people read uh, Jeff Hawkins' uh, recent new book, 1000 Brains. I disagree with him in his assessment of the dangers from artificial general intelligence, I should say. I think he's a bit too blasé saying if we don't build in ambition and a, a desire to self-perpetuate, then AGI will be benign. I think we can get bad consequences accidentally. We will try to give it benign motivations, but if we specify it wrongly, It'll be a bit like uh, King Midas asking for everything he touched to turn to gold without realizing the bad consequences or like the sorcerer's apprentice invoking something with the intention of doing good, but realizing it was out of control. So that part, I disagree with him. But I do say there is the possibility that a single fairly straightforward breakthrough will suddenly unlock the door to AGI and it'll be here before we are ready for it, which is why we need to think very hard about it now to ensure that we set it off in the right direction rather than something that seems to be benign but will veer off and lead us to be imprisoned, not out of a malign influence, but just as a consequence mm -hmm. of robotic algorithms. So pulling on that thread a little further, from the point of regulation, which I think probably has a more important role to play in the AI future than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, are there regulations that should be thought of and passed now ahead of those advances? Or should, like most regulations, unfortunately, should it lag behind once the damage has already been done and then try to catch up and prevent future damage? So we absolutely need to uh, push on quickly with uh, smart regulations. And even Elon Musk, who says that as a, a vibrant capitalist, he normally dislikes regulations. He says this is a special case because we don't get a chance to learn from our mistakes. In many other fields, how do you progress? You fail and then you learn from your failures and you become smarter. With something so large as this, it's like designing a nuclear power station. You can't have a few disasters and then pick up the pieces Although we've had a few disasters in smaller scale, but if we had an even larger disaster, it would be the end of the world. So we have to push on with uh, uh, insisting that software is as transparent and as explicable as possible. We should not accept any software that says, well, here's the answer and we can't tell you why, because it's just a black box. 
And some of the principles inside the European GDPR tries to push that point, and they are entirely right. We must push for transparency. We must also push for responsibility, in which companies are no longer able to say, well, here's the software, you take it, but if something goes wrong, we are not responsible, you have signed to waive all our responsibilities. No, we must insist that companies are held responsible for bad outcomes from their software. And the software industry has been given, in many ways, a free pass for many decades. And on the whole, it has been good, but that is no longer possible. So these are the two most important examples. But I would also move towards some kind of kite mark registration. Now, people are afraid of this because they say government ministers never understand. They're always behind this behind things. They're going to be cack-handed and uh, foolish in how they do the administration. And when I look at some of the things the EU are trying to do, it's almost enough to make me a Brexiteer. So it's not. <laughs> when I say some of the slow bureaucratic processes, no, we've got to get some of the best people in industry and uh, in policy working together aggressively on this. And we need to ensure that this is not a second class career, it is a first class career and all software initiatives, especially AI initiatives must have a great attention to these uh, principles. So do you foresee something like a Paris Climate Agreement kind of scale, but on smart regulations? Because obviously you've mentioned Europe's doing GDPR. In the States, California has its own thing, but there's nothing federal. And you just see this patchwork where gaps will exist. Do you foresee something like that, a, a global initiative for these kind of regulations? Or would that only follow some sort of disaster? Well, there is something called GPAI, and I'm not sure if they've decided if it's pronounced GPI or GPAY. It's the Global Partnership on AI, which has uh, representatives from uh, many different uh, governments involved in that. That builds upon uh, previous other initiatives in which people from big tech and people from various NGOs have got together. Uh, in partly, it was funded by Elon Musk, to so give him credit for that too. And they met together various times. Uh, 2015, there was a big conference in Puerto Rico, where for the first time, many people from these companies said, hang on, you know, we are going to regret unless we share our best insights. Two years later at Asilomar in California, they came up with uh, what's called the 23 Asilomar principles for the development of AI. And they're by no means a complete and finished entity, but they are a starting point for more serious work. And this is now starting to feed into work done by government. In the UK, there is a pretty impressive group called the All-Party Parliamentary Group on AI. It has representatives in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords who are looking quite seriously at this. My one reservation about that initiative and several others is it's a little bit too focused on the present. And my goodness, there are lots of issues with today's AI that do need attention. So I am sympathetic to that. Things like bias in software, things like the new skills that are needed to help people to find work after being displaced by today's automation. It doesn't spend enough time on the even bigger issues of artificial general intelligence, nor even does it spend enough time on what I might call uh, tomorrow's AI, which is when we'll have one or two more breakthroughs, but not yet get to AGI. So this uh, futurist work is a great deal of what uh, we try to do at London Futurists and uh, welcome people to get involved in our discussions on exactly these same topics. Mm, okay, great. Um, I, I, I suppose one thing I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, David, um, which is a bit abstract, but, you know, it's, it's all about the future. Um, what potential black swans do you really really worry about and you may have touched upon some of these already because you've given some good great insight into certain aspects on on the agi and um I, i'm just curious is is there something else that's out there in your mind that niggles you and and kind of really concerns you keeps you people... awake at night <laughs> Well, the cyber Wait, infections, <laughs> the, cyber, the cyber infections, which I mentioned, I don't think it gets enough attention. And I've been to a couple of uh, conferences recently 
about risks on the future. And the thing they weren't discussing enough, in my view, is the vulnerabilities of our shared infrastructure. So there's that. And I also worry about our rationality being increasingly hijacked by increasingly clever artificial intelligence, not yet general intelligence, but it's smart enough to do the bidding of humans to distract us even more from the big questions. I also do worry about shifts in climate change. Now, this can't be called a black swan because a black swan is something that nobody expected. Many people are drawing attention to this. What I mean is that rather than just having a linear extension of our climate, which is gradually heating up, gradually heating up, we might see a tipping point in which suddenly things flip from one state to another state. This has happened in ancient times when the climate temperature changed by maybe eight degrees within a decade, according to evidence from what maybe uh, before the, uh, towards the end of the last ice age. So this has happened many times in the past. Now it wasn't greenhouse gas emissions from humans who caused these previous tipping points, but the climate can move from one state to another. So just uh, today I saw a report that part of the Antarctic ice shelf may be melting faster than had previously been expected. And if a particular iceberg detaches, it could precipitate many other parts of that uh, ice sheet uh, melting more quickly. And so we'd have an acceleration of the rise in uh, sea levels. There's also been reports recently that as an uh, important currents in the Atlantic are going north and south. It takes warm water north uh, on the surface and then cold water south again deep underground, deep, sorry, deep in the oceans. And this has been running for thousands of years. And the evidence is that it is weaker now than at any stage in at least the last thousand years. And this might precipitate the end of things, including the Gulf Stream, which might plunge the UK and other nearby countries into a much colder weather. So it's strange that right. global warming will bring greater cooling. And so I think this is a very serious topic. And thankfully, it's getting more attention now. But uh, the, what tends to get attention is the linear changes in climate, whereas I would be concerned about the exponential changes in climate mm. and the responses, because I can imagine countries saying, oh my goodness, this is terrible. We're gonna have to take our own initiatives here. And they will reach for something called geoengineering, which uh, involves emitting lots of sulfur dioxide particles into the atmosphere, or there's many other approaches. And that may indeed undo some of the climate change, but it's likely to have yet other side effects, which mm. many people are seriously worried about. And you yeah. know what? In a time of crisis, just as when we had the COVID, people uh, said, well, governments can have more power than we previously wa wanted to give them, and it's all in a good cause. Many countries may say, well, we know there's risk here, but we've got to do something. And you can see other countries nearby saying, we're not going to let you do this. It's going to be bad news for us. And you might get what I talked about earlier, the crisis between Israel and Iran or between India and Pakistan or Donald Trump version two and Kim Jong-un version two. They might be prompted to go over the edge. So that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, I think um, especially on your point with climate change and in particular the oceans, one thing in that as well, which I don't think gets enough attention, but documentaries like Seaspiracy have sort of brought it to light, is depleted fish stocks. And if we look at just our own ecosystem on land, right, not having certain animals in the food chain changes the environment very drastically and just wiping out whole stocks of fish in the ocean and expecting it to regulate climate the same way that it always has, right? To your point about um, the ocean gyre changes and deep water to shallow water, it's it's very scary. Um, yeah. And, and when is this potentially going to become a real impact? The, the whole... We don't know. You know, uh, some scientists are shocked at the rate of change that has happened. Some people will say, well, it's within what was predicted 10, 20 years ago. But others will say it is more worrying than they had expected before. So could it be tomorrow? Perhaps. Yeah. Mm. I don't think it will happen tomorrow. Mm. Uh, I, I hope it won't happen tomorrow. But mm. it's all the more reason to 
hurry up and uh, improve our modeling, improve our measuring, and to insist that we approach this from a rational scientific point of view. We've got to leave some of our politicking behind. Mm -hmm. You know, many of us are naturally political creatures. We like to throw mud at the people we perceive to be opponents. Uh, we want to emphasize particular ideologies that are important to us. That's the kind of creatures we are, homo sapiens. We are tribal. That was served as well in evolutionary times. We've got to try and send these instincts now and insist on uh, studying what the science really does say. And not in a naive sense. We need to all become experts, dare I say, in the philosophy of science as well as just uh, experts in the science. So we are not misled by people wearing white coats and spouting equations and so on, as has happened too often in the COVID days. We must uh, truly uh, learn how we can uh, give the appropriate degree of respect to experts in multiple fields. Great. Um... On a slightly lighter note, because um, clearly we've, we've gone quite deep over the last hour and it's, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, just apart from the golf, what, what's, what's David relaxing, um, re relaxation all about? Is it, is, it, is it more books? Is it uh, anything that you uh, particularly have enjoyed on, on Netflix or Amazon that you might want to recommend to the viewers that perhaps is... Um, a biopic of the future, maybe. I mean, I, I watched Debs recently, and that was quite an interesting um, program. Which uh, I, you know, I, I don't know which big tech giant it was predicting to be, but um, it was somewhat scary what was going on in in whichever organisation that was. Um, so yeah, just kind of um, how how are you spending any any time outside of the futurist, David? Well, I think the future is so important that I actually do want to spend most of my time thinking about it, debugging my ideas. It's not just the bad things that may happen. There are good opportunities which we might miss if we are not paying enough attention to them. I mean, I see the possibilities of artificial general intelligence to help us uh, build effectively a kind of paradise, a sustainable superabundance in which we have solved issues such as dementia and cancer or aging in which we comprehensively solve the risks of uh, climate change as well. So these matters are really important, but you're quite right. We need to balance our lives. Otherwise, we might go mad if we focus too much in one area. So I do take myself to the golf course a few times a week and leave my phone disconnected whilst I am there. And that's good. Fresh air. I also walk... Uh, and that's how I get my exercise and I plug in my headset and I will listen to uh, audible books, occasionally podcasts, but I like to get uh, knowledge in depth. I am listening uh, to a work of fiction at this moment. It is a work of futurist fiction. It's by Callum Chase, a writer on AI, and he has written a couple of novels about the near future. And the one I'm listening to now is called Pandora's Oracle. And I like what I've read so far but I haven't finished it. So I'm not sure how much of a thumbs up I'll give it at the end, but he is a good guy. And with my wife, who's Korean, uh, we watch K-drama from time uh -huh. to time. Uh, Netflix is full of amazing K-drama. And they've signed some deals for a lot more K-drama. So you're in for yep. a treat. And uh, I did actually quite enjoy Dark, I have to say. This uh, German uh, time travel. Uh, a very dark in some ways but it was thought-provoking and uh, we need intellectual stimulation and uh, we raise our minds mm -hmm. imagination is important but then we need to apply critical thinking on the to try and figure out well what is real and what's not real i'm not predicting time travel anytime soon to be clear that's not on my set of uh, black swans or technology that really would be a shock for the book if it were to happen but I am predicting uh, that the future, the near future, even in five years' time, will be very different in some aspects from how we are today. So I think uh, wrapping up, David, it's, it's been a brilliant, brilliant chat. Um, if people want to connect into your further thoughts, I, I believe you have a meetup. Is it every week or every couple of weeks? Just curious how, if any, anyone listening is, as I've always been has been inspired by what you've, you've said how they can connect into you moving forward 
So if people Google London Futurists, they might find a standalone website in which we have lots of newsletters. You can sign up there to receive the newsletter, or you might all find the meetup.com page for London Futurists where you will be informed about our forthcoming meetings. I don't do one every week. Sometimes I do them every week. So I'm in the middle of three weeks in a row now. It all depends on uh, which speakers are available at which times. And the goal is to keep pushing the envelope. And I don't want to, to duplicate what many other meetups in London are already ably doing. I'm trying to bring a serious attention to some quite disturbing or radical ideas on the view that we need to overcome our future shock, our wow or our yuck feelings and be calm enough to think about them carefully so we can decide whether we should be pursuing them with the accelerator or whether we should be slamming on the brakes and saying, no, not at all. Great, nice way to end. So I'll say my thank yous and Anthony. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. It's thank been you. really great, David. Thank you, take care.